This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, we have an extra special show. On Monday, we did Masters in Business Live, and my guest was the incomparable Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital. They run about $120 billion and have put up numbers that have been quite astonishing uh, for their entire 24-year history. This is the second Masters in Business Live we've done. The first one was Ray Dalio. Uh, We're going to continue doing these every few months, and we have an interesting list of guests coming up. If you are anywhere near the New York City headquarters on the day we do one of these, I strongly advise you to get tickets. Not only is it live, so anything can happen, but it's really a fascinating conversation. And in both cases, um, our guests stick around, chat with... uh, the, the audience um, take questions, sign books. It's very informal. And how often do you get to really hang around and, and have that sort of interaction with legends in finance uh, like that? Plus, Bloomberg is a great place to come to an event. They always serve drinks and appetizers. They really uh, roll out the red carpet. It was It was a Lovely and delightful evening. Everybody who attended had a great time. Uh, Rather than me continue to babble, with no further ado, my Masters in Business Live with Oak Tree Capital's Howard Marks. And once again, I I get to start out by announcing um, that I am cheating by bringing someone like Howard here. Makes my job really easy. Uh, If you're not familiar with his background, I'm going to give you just a really short uh, CV of Howard Marks. He's the co-chairman and co-founder of Oak Tree Capital, uh, which now manages over $120 billion in assets. Howard formed Oak Tree to run high-yield bonds, distressed debt, and private equity and other strategies back in 1995. They run 17 separate distressed debt funds, unless it's risen to more, which have averaged annual gains of 19% after fees for the past 24%, about 700 basis points above its peers in the fixed income space, and handily beating a lot of equity funds over the same time period. He is the author of The Most Important Thing, Uncommon Sense for the Thoughtful Investor. His new book, which everyone here will get a copy of, is Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side. Howard Marks, welcome to Bloomberg Live. It's great to be here. So I'll, I'll get to the books um, in a few minutes, but I want to start with an interesting question that I think people may not be aware of your background. You began as an equity analyst. How, how does one of the world's most famous bond managers begin his career as an equity analyst? Well, I think that, I, I think that uh, certainly at that point in time, uh, be, starting off as an equity analyst was the, was the normal course. Uh, no, uh, bonds at that time were considered a backwater that nobody was interested in. I, they had two old uh, uh, European refugees in the research department at Citibank, and I remember uh, they would publish a biweekly uh, bond uh, summary, and I remember at one point one came around with a black box in the upper right-hand corner that says, the last issue. 
because everybody lost interest in bonds. Stocks were doing so well, you know how it works. Stocks were doing so well, bonds were doing so poorly that people lose interest. Now, uh, what the contrarian says is, I want to get out of the thing that's been doing well and into the things that's doing poorly, but contrarianism hadn't become invented yet uh, at that point in time. But anyway, so I started off in, in uh, equity research, as you say. I had a summer job uh, in 68, came back full-time after grad school in 69, um, became uh, a senior analyst, a unit head, director of research from 75 to 78. Uh, and then I got my lucky break in 78 when I switched to uh, uh, what was called the bond department. But I wasn't ever managing straight uh, fixed income. I was started with convertible bonds. And then in the summer of uh, 78, I got the phone call that changed my life. Uh, the head of the bond department called me and he said, there's some guy in California named Milken or something. And he deals in something called high-yield bonds. Can you figure out what that means? Because a client had come in and asked for a high-yield bond portfolio. And I was smart enough to say yes. So that's the transition from equities to regular bonds to high-yield bonds. How do you end up over at Trust Company of the West? In, uh, in the first business trip of my life, in January 1970, I went to California. And uh, I was studying, uh, studying a group that doesn't exist anymore called the Conglomerates. Mm -hmm. And uh, after the, doing the, the company visits, my boss and I, his in-laws, lived in uh, Laguna Beach. So we went down there and spent the weekend. I fell in love with California. Mm -hmm. And I spent the 70s trying to figure out a, a, a way to get to California, which I did in 1980. Uh, City, I got Citibank to move me in 1980, <clears throat> and then in 85, Trust Company of the West, which was an L.A. company, uh, approached me because they wanted to expand into my asset classes, and, and that's how I moved there in 85. So it's worth mentioning in passing that when you were working at Trust Company of the West, you were supervising a, a young whiz kid named uh, Jeff Gunlock or working with? That's right. That's right. Tell, tell us what it was like um, writing herd on him. He, he seems to be a person that doesn't lend himself to uh, being told what, what to do. Well, I never kidded myself into thinking that, that I was actually supervising him. Uh, but, you know, um, I, was, I was asked to, well, you used the term right herd, which is as good as any. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we, you know, he uh, kind of respected me intellectually. And so, and so we got along. And, uh, and uh, I think with Jeff, that's the key. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and uh, he, he was very innovative in his approach. He, he was managing mortgage-backed securities from the late 80s, uh, which was innovative. And, uh, you know, uh, he, would, he would figure out strategies and then share them with me in the hope that I would understand. So, so fast forward. And, and I would assume you, you probably did understand pretty well. Um, fast forward a couple of years, you launch Oak Tree in 95. And then a decade or so after that, uh, Jeff decides to part ways with Trust Company of the West. And he comes to you for some career advice. How, how did that work out? Well, of course, he didn't decide to part ways with I KCW. Guess. They decided to part ways with him. Yes. Uh, and he got canned, is mm -hmm. the technical term. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think it was December 09, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, you know, he, hey, he had a great following among his clients and among his, his staff. And uh, as soon as he got let go, uh, I think the rest of them all quit. And, uh, his whole team. I think his whole team. 
and then he, uh, through a brokerage firm, or they, nowadays they say investment bank, mm -hmm. uh, approached us and said, would you, uh, would you help us get started uh, in exchange for 15% of our company? Mm -hmm. And so we were, again, smart enough to say yes. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a matter of finances. It was a matter of infrastructure, back office, tax, legal, registration, all those things. And there's a, you know, when we started Oak Tree in 95, people would say, what's been the biggest surprise? I said, the biggest surprise is how much non-investment stuff there yeah. is in an investment management job. So we helped him with that. He's in our building mm -hmm. in California. And... Um, we just uh, meet and chat uh, periodically. But as I say, we started with 15% of the company. Then we realized that under accounting rules, w in order to bring in our share of their profits, we would have to uh, own 20%. So we bought another 7%, and it, we got diluted down to 20, which is where we are now. We have dilution protection. We're extremely happy to be a 20% owner of DoubleLine. And, and I want to say DoubleLine is the fastest growing asset management firm to reach $100 billion, I believe, is that I, about right? I, I wouldn't swear to it, but I believe that's right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the chairman's memos, which you're somewhat um, infamous for. Um, I'm going to quote Warren Buffett. When I see memos from Howard Marks in my mailbox, they're the first thing I open and read. I always learn something. Tell us what led you to publishing the chairman's memos. When, when did they start, and why did you feel the need to write them? They started in 1990, so this is the 30th year. Mm -hmm. um, Congratulations. And thank you. And I don't remember uh, thinking that if I wrote them, I'd get more business or anything like that. But uh, there were two events that happened in my environment, the juxtaposition of which was, I thought, extremely informative. And so I wanted to write it up and share it with my clients. Now is all. Um, and and you're you're well known for them today. Buffett had has lauded them, and other people have talked so um, uh, approvingly of them. But when you first started publishing these, what was the response like? Big fat zero. Zero. Uh, it, literally, Barry, there. It was ten years before I ever had a response. Not only did nobody say it was oh that was good nobody ever said i got it so it was you know and this is this was day. an email this was that's right this regular paper. paper this is the day of running the the, the xerox machine uh, folding them up putting them in envelopes addressing them putting stamps on and then as far as i knew tossing them down the sewer <laughs> uh, because i never had a response for 10 years for a day and so so i kind of remember what made me write the first one i have no idea what kept me going so you said you, there's no response for a decade that response, though, I very specifically remember that one because Barron's did a giant mm. cover on it, Bubble.com, right. in January 2000. Right. Not only were you right, but the timing couldn't have been any better. Tell us about that particular chairman's meeting. Sure. Memo. Well, of course, uh, in our business, um, it doesn't do you any good to be right if the timing's not good. You know, there's an old saying in our business that being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. Mm -hmm. So if I would have published the same insight in 1997, uh, I'd be forgotten because it would have taken three plus years to work. It happens it only took a few months to work. And basically the premise of the menu, a memo, was that the TMT, tech media telecom bubble that had been uh, pushing stocks up for the last few years of the 90s and into 2000, uh, 
was overdone, the subject of excessive optimism and excessive faith in the future, and entirely free of any kind of analytical or valuation rigor. You know, I mean, we're used to paying 15 times earnings for an average company and maybe 30 times earnings for what we think is a great company. But how do you value a company that has no earnings? Hold on. How do you value a company that has no sales? You know, I mean, you were valuing an idea. And people were, you see, and, and uh, in the investment business, there's a tendency to uh, succumb to platitudes, generalizations. And so what was going on in 98, 99 was the Internet will change the world. And as a consequence, any stock which is Internet or uh, uh, e-commerce related, is the right price is infinity. There's n and and uh, uh, as I say in the book, can I say in the book? Okay, slight, sure, slight plug. But as I say in the book, if you want to understand bubbles, to me, the defining characteristic of, of a bubble is the belief that, quote, there's no price too high. If it's, if it's an internet stock, there's no price too high. If there was the Nifty 50 back when I started in 1968, Xerox, Kodak, Merck, Lilly, no price too high. And of course, it's obvious that everything, there is no, there's nothing so good that it can't be overvalued. And if you buy something at a price which is excessive for its merits, by the, it, it's going to require magic to make it into a successful investment. So... Uh, that was the theme of the memo. You know, I talked about, I talked about businesses, and by, by the way, we still some, see some today which, which don't have a profit plan, you know? And uh, uh, companies that, you know, the, uh, as I said in the memo, well, the, people used to say the great thing about this company is that its costs are almost zero. And I wrote, well, that's great because its revenues are absolutely zero, you know? And uh, I, I quoted my dad, who was a big joke teller, and he said that the two guys were talking, and one guy says, everything I sell, I sell at cost. He said, well, how do you make money? He says, well, I buy below cost. <laughs> but, but, the, but the Internet business model at that time seemed equally uh, irrational, and yet the stocks were selling at sky-high prices. And of course, and as I said in a, in a memo which, re, which reviewed this, progression later, you know, uh, in my first 30 years in the business, after a bubble popped, we would see a table in the upper right-hand corner of the journal, and they'd show all the stocks that were down 90%, mm -hmm. remember? And then with this, they showed all the stocks who were down 99% or more. And uh, so th the bubble popped, the memo looked smart, I said in the, in the introduction to my first book, after 10 years, I became an overnight success, and uh, that's the story. So, so let's talk about that first book, uh, which is the most important thing, Uncommon Sense for the Thoughtful Investor. You're writing these memos on an irregular basis. Right. Um, what motivated you to say, I know, let's, let's now spend 300 pages and a year writing a book? That was simple. I got a letter from Warren. Warren? Buffett. Uh -huh. Saying saying 
if, you know, I, I wrote a memo, I think, I forget which one it was, uh, which was right up his alley. And uh, I, I wrote him afterwards and I said, did you see this one? He says, yeah, I saw it, it was fine. And he says, by the way, if you'll write a book, I'll give you a quote for the jacket. Mm -hmm. Enough said. A blurb. Enough said. Right. And, and uh, you know, you don't pass that one by. No. So I had always thought that I would write a book pulling the philosophy together uh, when I retired, and instead it got, it got accelerated. Mm -hmm. What was the experience of writing a book like? It, it was great. Um, you know, um, for me, the challenge is not to think up what to say. The, the challenge is to get it from here to there. Mm -hmm. You know, and you, 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 the thoughts are coming so fast, and you're afraid they're going to evaporate. Right. So that you have to sit there and you have to... So, so let's talk about some of those thoughts, which I've pulled from both books. Quote, we can make excellent investment decisions on the basis of present observations right. with no need to make guesses about the future. Right. Right. Doesn't that run kind of contrary to how lots and lots of people invest their capital? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the irony is that what is, what is investing? Investing is positioning your capital to profit from the future that unfolds. Mm -hmm. And yet, in my book, we can't know what the future holds. So I uh, and Oak Tree, through its investment philosophy, uh, specifically eschew macro forecasts. And I don't believe we ever know enough about the coming economy, markets, currencies, and interest rates to make us a successful and a superior investor. It's very hard to hold a view which is different from the consensus, and it's very hard to have a non-consensus view which turns out to be more correct than the consensus. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, so I don't believe in forecasts. Uh, now, everybody says, but the macro is so important. It's the macro that moves the markets these days. And it, it truly does feel, let's say for the last 15 or 20 years, that yes, the, the macro is much more important than company news. Uh, in moving the market. So they say, well, how can, you, how can you not do macro forecasting? And uh, I was sitting having dinner with Warren, you know who, uh, a that, one. A, that one, a few years ago, and he said to me, for a piece of information to be desirable, it has to satisfy two criteria. It has to be important, and the macro is extremely important, and it has to be knowable. So you can have something which is very important, but if you spend your time trying to figure it out, it could be a waste of time if it's not knowable. And I believe that the macro future is not knowable. So uh, in, in the first book, uh, the most important thing, there are 21 chapters, and each one starts off the title. The most important thing is, and then it's a different thing. Because in investing, there is no one thing which is the most important. There are, in that, according to the book, there are 21 things, all of which are the most important thing. Um, and uh, one of those is knowing where we stand in the cycle. And when I, it was time to write a second book, uh, I pulled that out, and that's what I devoted the book to. So, so since you brought that up, let's talk about the second book, Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side. Of all those 21 
chapters in the first book, why cycles? Why did you pick that, um, eschewing the other 20, when you really, you can write a 21-volume uh, encyclopedia, each chapter being a book? Well, Barry, I believe of the things, of all the 21 most important things, I think that there are two that are more important than the others. Mm -hmm. And they are risk and where we stand in the cycle. Mm -hmm. I believe that risk management, risk control, is the mark of an exceptional investor. It's not hard to make money in the market. It's especially not hard when the market goes up, and the market goes up most of the time. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, everybody in the market makes money. But if you don't know what you're doing, if, if you're throwing darts, if you're just surfing, uh, you know, what we call beta schlepping, Mm -hmm. uh, that's not an accomplishment. To me, an exceptional investor is someone who makes a lot of money when things go well, but does it with the risk under control so that he, he or she won't lose a lot of money when the market does poorly. So I think that uh, I devote actually three chapters in the first book to risk, understanding risk, recognizing risk, controlling risk. And I think that is the mark of the superior investor. That's number one. Number two, the cycle. There's a connection here because I believe that where the market is in its cycle determines how risky it is. Mm -hmm. when, when everything's been going swimmingly and as a consequence the market is elevated in its cycle relative to something we might think of as the midpoint or the intrinsic value, then I think it's risky. And when it's depressed in its cycle and low relative to intrinsic value or the midpoint or the norm, then I think the risk is very low. So understanding, even though we can't benefit from predictions of the future, I believe that where the market is in its cycle can tell us a lot about what the odds are. And that... that you mentioned the subtitle of the book, Getting the Odds on Your Side, and I, I, I actually prefer the subtitle to the title mm -hmm. because it conveys, I hope, a sense for my belief that we cannot know what the future holds. The future is nothing but a probability distribution. But if we think and study right, we can have an idea about the shape of the probability distribution and what returns are most likely. It's interesting you say that you prefer the subtitle right. because the title itself sort of is at odds with some things you've said before about you really have a, a mantra, not only can people not predict the future, they can't time the market especially well either. How do you reconcile mastering a market cycle that seems a little contradictory to sure. being able to time it. Sure. Well, let me say up front, I believe very firmly that we sometimes have a sense for what's going to happen. We never know when. Mm -hmm. So when you say timing, the word time is, is, is something I just discard. Uh, you know, since I'm a writer, everybody at Oak Tree has the habit of writing. Everybody at Oak Tree write, writes a letter every quarter to his clients. And uh, 
there's a guy there who, who I was reading, and I review all the letters before they go out. And one of them, he, uh, the portfolio manager said, if you name a date, don't name a price. And if you name a price, don't name a date. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, if you never name both a date and a price, you can never be wrong. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, but, but I do think that you can have an idea about what the future holds. You can have a, an idea whether this is a good time to invest or not, but you, you never know when the things you're hoping for uh, will unfold. And uh, if, you, if you think about it, I believe that everything an investor does, what you do, what I do, falls under one of two headings, asset selection and what I call cycle positioning in order to avoid using the word timing. What do they mean? Asset selection means trying to hold more of the things that will do better and less of the things that will do worse. Pretty easy. Mm -hmm. And cycle positioning means trying to have more of your capital invested and more aggressively when the odds are favorable and less of your capital invested more defensively when the odds are against you. I think you can, we can know something about the odds. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we're going to be right or we're going to be right right away, especially. Uh, and that can enable us to effectively do cycle positioning uh, through an understanding of where we stand in the cycle. So you mentioned two things earlier that I have to circle back to. One was the concept of intrinsic value, mm -hmm. where assets might be above or below that. And the second is the implication about psychology, mm. which really um, we went by too quickly. So I have to Good. come back to that. Good. Um, intrinsic value clearly refers to paying less for an asset than you think sure. it's ultimately worth. I think you, you've written extensively about the advantages of being an, a value investor. Yes. But let's, let's explore the psychology of that because it seems much easier to buy when things are going up than to sell. And conversely, when everything is down, it's much easier to sell with the crowd than take the other side of the trade. Well, first of all, intrinsic value, every, every asset that produces cash flow, you can talk reasonably about its intrinsic value. What would you pay? to get those cash flows. It might be a company, a stock, a bond, a building. Anything that produces cash flow can be valued. That's what value investors do. We try to figure out the value and buy for less. That makes perfect sense, in, in my opinion. Um, now, the next question is, do assets sell at their intrinsic value? And the answer is no. The asset, the prices of assets vary very significantly from intrinsic value from time to time. Why? Well, you said it, psychology. Sometimes people are excited and the, the, the price goes way above the intrinsic value. And sometimes they're depressed and the price goes below the intrinsic value. Now, you, the next thing you mentioned was how easy it is to buy things that are going up. You mean easy psychologically. Yes. Right? Um, uh, you know, uh, Dave Swenson, who runs the endowment at Yale, which is the 
probably the best performing endowment in the country over the last 30 plus years that he's been doing it, uh, wrote a book in which he said that in, uh, superior performance uh, in investment management requires the adoption of uncomfortably idiosyncratic positions. In other words, if you, the job in investing, uh, well, let me say this, investing is a funny area because it's really easy to be average and it's really hard to be above average. But for a professional like myself, or like Swenson, since it's easy, being average is not what we seek. We seek to be above average. Uh, uh, this may shock you, but professional investors do it for the money, mm -hmm. and they hope to be paid highly, but clearly, since anybody can be average without any effort or professionalism, the payoff is in being above average. If you think like everybody else, you'll behave like everybody else. If you behave like everybody else, you'll perform like everybody else. So clearly, exceptional performance has to come from diverging from the crowd. And that's what Swenson means when, he's, when he says uncomfortably idiosyncratic. Because if, if you are behaving in an idiosyncratic way, that is to say, everybody else is buying, and you say, well, their buying has raised the price too high relative to the intrinsic value, I'm going to sell. If they're all buying and you're selling, believe me, it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Now, we do it because we believe we have performed a competent intellectual process doesn't make it comfortable. What you know? about the flip side when everybody is selling? Exactly is that, the same. That, is that a little, I would imagine that's a little more comfortable because a sell-off and a panic at least makes it appear things are falling below that intrinsic value. So there's that. Well, there is some truth in that because the trouble with the difficulty in selling when a market has been rising for several months or years, uh, comes from the fear that it will continue to rise and you'll miss out, FOMO, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a very strong force. You know, there's a book out on bubbles and crashes by a guy named Charles Kindleberger, sure. and he says in there something like, there is nothing as injurious for your mental well-being as to watch a friend get rich. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, and it's, that's, that's one of these sayings which is, it captures it all right there. That's human nature. Uh, so, so FOMO is very challenging. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I don't know if it's any easier on the way down. Uh, I mean, intellectually, you should be able to look at assets like stocks and bonds that have gone on sale and say, that's ridiculously uh, inexpensive, I'm going to jump in. But as I spend a lot of time in the book uh, dissecting a common phrase, called, which is catching a falling knife. Mm -hmm. And so many people say, I'm not going to try to catch a falling knife. You know, this thing is collapsing. I have no idea how far it's going to go. I don't want to stand in front of that process. Uh, I'm going to wait until the dust settles and the uncertainty is resolved. And believe me, Barry, as I know you know well, when the dust settles and the uncertainty has been resolved, there's no more bargains left. Right. It's too because late. what causes great bargains? And by the way, let's diverge for a second. What is a bargain? A bargain is an asset that's selling too cheap. What causes 
assets to sell too cheap. Error. If, 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 for you to get a great bargain in the market, somebody else has to be making a big mistake. That has to, if you can buy something which is exceptionally cheap, somebody else has to be selling something which is exceptionally cheap. What makes anybody want to sell something at a price which is exceptionally cheap? And the answer is human nature or what you call psychology. Mm -hmm. And the answer is that when prices go up, people get excited and buy. When things go down, people get depressed and sell. They don't say, well, you know, it's on sale. It used to be 100, now it's 75. I'm a buyer. Warren, you know who, mm -hmm. says, I like hamburgers, and when hamburgers go on sale, I eat more hamburgers. And that's how value investors try to behave. We try to be unemotional, not get down because prices have fallen, even the, you know, the prices of the things we own have fallen, mm -hmm. but we try to say, it's a bargain, I'm going to buy more. But, right. it, but that requires you to get control of your psychology. Let me bring you back to the book for at least one more question, and I wanted to ask, um, you write, rule number one, most things will prove to be cyclical. Mm -hmm. Rule number two, some of the greatest opportunities for gain and sure. loss come when other people forget mm -hmm. rule number one. Yeah. That's pretty much what you're referring to yes. with people exactly. panic selling. And when, when things are rising, when stock prices have been rising, like you know, in a, in a great bull market for five, six, eight, nine years, what do they say? I think it's going to go up forever. And when it's been collapsing and the price is, and an asset is a third of what it was a year or two ago, what do they say? I think it's going to zero. Mm -hmm. And in fact, and so what they, they, what they do is they extrapolate unidirectional trends, whereas I believe most e events are cyclical and trees don't grow to the sky and very little goes to zero. So let me, let me bring up one of your pet peeves that I'm, I'm amused by. Um, what inning is this? People ask you that question, and you, you hate that question. Explain why. Well, I don't, ha I don't hate it, but I, I, I mean, it's, it's challenging to know the answer. Mm -hmm. I, right now, I say we're, I think we're in the eighth inning. That's great, Howard. The only trouble is I've been saying the eighth inning for a couple of years now. Right. And... Uh, what I realized about a year ago. By the way, that question started to come up really uh, in 08, when right. we were in the global financial crisis. And people used to say, what inning are we in? And what they really meant is, when is the collapse going to end? Mm -hmm. Now they mean, when is the up cycle going to end? And most people say, I, I, I realize that it can't go well forever, but uh, I can't imagine what's going to make it come to an end. But the truth is, you know, we are at an advanced stage of the economic recovery and of the bull market, and uh, uh, there are very secure, few securities around that are uh, absolutely cheap, mm -hmm. and most investors are happy doing risk investing and have lots of money for the purpose, so they're bidding up asset prices. So um, let's... So, uh, but, but, uh, I, so I think we're in the eighth inning, but I realized about a year ago an important distinction. This isn't baseball. In baseball, we know that a regulation game has nine innings. And in this game, it could go nine or 11 or 14. We have no idea. So again, the fact that I think we're in the eighth and that things are extended doesn't mean 
that the game is just about to end. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, the Fed, some people have been complaining they've tightened too much. Other people are saying they're behind the curve. You've been a student of the credit markets for decades. What do you think of what, where the Fed is and what their future behavior might be? Well, I talk about the Fed a little bit in the, mm -hmm. in the book. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's a chapter on the role of government and central banks with regard to the economic cycle. The Fed has a tough job. Well, it actually, it has three tough jobs. Mm -hmm. Number one, it's supposed to manage inflation and keep it under control, which means that the economy shouldn't get too hot. Number two, it's supposed to support economic growth and employment, for which they would rather the market did get hot. And number three, there are now a lot of people who think that the Fed job is to prevent a recession and a declining stock market. I don't think uh, Jay Powell uh, certainly feels the, the latter. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, uh, you know, uh, I think that in interest rates, low interest rates, have been the outstanding characteristic of the financial markets for the last 10 years. They have dominated behavior uh, over that period. They've been too low. They've been unnaturally low. They were made unnaturally low in order to bring the economy back from the global financial crisis and the abyss of collapse. Uh, there are reasons why rates should be higher. Number one, rates should probably be at their naturally occurring level so that, so that the, the free market will allocate resources prudently. To date, it has been subsidizing borrowers and penalizing savers mm -hmm. and lenders. Um, number two, uh, the Fed wants rates to be high enough so that if the economy slows down, they can drop rates and stimulate the economy um, and, uh, and so forth. Um, so, you know, uh, there's a belief that there's a correlation, inverse correlation between unemployment and, and uh, uh, inflation, that when, in, when unemployment gets really low, that, target, that triggers inflation. That's called the Phillips curve. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody, since we now are at a 50-year low in unemployment, everybody's been waiting for inflation to get going, which is the, the, the Fed's main concern is that it shouldn't get going too strongly. And so th that's why they've been talking about raising rates, but it hasn't happened. And everybody's mystified uh, by why we don't have inflation, and uh, there's no easy answer. I think is, is that a risk factor for a credit investor like yourself? Inflation? Well, the Fed, inflation. Yeah, the lack of well, inflation. it is, but I also think it's unpredictable. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, to me, the, my, the question over the last five years or more has been, are, inflation, are rates going up or not? And I believed that they would, and they have for good reason, as I've explained, um, and uh, uh, not, you know, people, people would, for, for years, you'll remember, people would, would talk to you and they say, do you think the rates are going up in January or March? And I would say, well, why do you care? What, what's the difference? That, what month they go up doesn't matter. People were so preoccupied, especially when, when they were looking for the first rate increase, remember? Mm -hmm. And I would say, the only thing that matters, are they going to go up? And are they going to go up a lot? And are they going to go up fast? And what month it starts happening in doesn't matter. And of course, nobody got it right, proving, I think, my point uh, as to the timing. But they did raise rates. And my guess is that they'll raise them a little more. But I never thought they would go up far or fast, and I still don't. 
So at one point in time, um, debt investors were concerned with deficits mm -hmm. from the federal government. Seems like we've kind of lost our enthusiasm sure. for, for fighting deficits. What are your thoughts on the government balance sheet uh, and perhaps modern monetary theory? What, are, are deficits now okay? Or My mother's term for that, Barry, is passe. Mm -hmm. Worrying about the debt and the deficit is passe. Nobody seems to care anymore. When I was a boy, there used to be debates about whether it was okay to have debt mm -hmm. for a nation to have debt. And I don't see anybody discussing that anymore. The only question is whether there's such a thing as having too much debt. And some people think there is, but nobody can say what it is, of course. Uh, historically, of course, the Democrats believed in tax and spend and I would say deficits. And the Republicans were the fiscal uh, disciplinarians who would fight against deficits. That seems to have gone out the window. Nobody really st stands four square for deficit and debt reduction. Uh, and in fact, uh, most recently, we, we started seeing articles saying that it's, it's uh, old-fashioned to worry about deficits and debt. And uh, it's much more important to uh, uh, pursue society's needs. Uh, at, even at the cost of a deficit. So it, it's troublesome. I mean, I think there probably is such a thing as too much. Um, you know, the bottom line is it probably doesn't matter how much debt you have as long as you can print the, the world's reserve currency. You know, we, we run the debt. It goes up, 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 up. The interest rate bill goes, interest goes up with the debt, or it'll go up faster if rates rise, as, as they have been. Uh, but... And, and paying the interest will occupy an increasing and increasing and increasing percentage of the federal budget. But it doesn't matter as long as you can print money, as long as you can sell an infinite number of uh, bonds overseas at the world's lowest rates because of the quality of the credit. And the question is, what if that ever stops? So that's the risk factor. What is the risk yeah. factor of deficits to fixed income purchasers? It's, it's, it's well, to the nation. Mm -hmm. It is that someday China says, you know what, we have enough treasuries. We're going to start buying euro. But the, the, the difficulty is what are you going to buy if it's mm -hmm. not the dollar? You're going to invest in the, in, the, in the euro? That looks precarious. You're going to invest in the pound? That's difficult with Brexit. Are you going to invest in, uh, in, in the ruble, uh, yuan, whatever it might be? So it looks like... We're going to, you know, this is all, this is, when you look at the government and how badly it functions, the optimism with regard to the future comes from the belief that we always have muddled through and we will continue to muddle through and that we don't have to worry about the debt and the deficit because we can always print money to pay the interest. Until we can't. Until we can't. Okay, but, so. But the, but the arrival of the date when we can't it comes under the heading of what I call improbable disasters. Mm -hmm. It would be a terrible thing. It would have a lot of negative uh, uh, ramifications, but you can't assign a very high probability to it uh, next year, the year after, the year after that, you know? So, and one of the most interesting dilemmas is what does the investor do about the improbable disaster? Since it's improbable, you can't do enough in your portfolio to prepare for it. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly if it happens, it'll have disastrous consequences and it'll turn out you didn't do enough. But 
but give, given that it's improbable, you can't do a lot. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, there's a lot of things, hyperinflation, deflation, all these things fall under that category. So we have two segments left. I want to be able to get, save some time to get to some questions from the room, but not yet. The last thing I want to do with you is our speed round, 10 questions, five minutes, short answers. Well, by now, you probably know I don't know anything about speed rounds or short answers, but, um, but I'll try. Well, let, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's start out. First car you ever owned, year, make, and model. 1965 Olds Cutlass. Um, now collectible. Aquamarine. $3,200. Uh, my parents paid half. What's the biggest political surprise we might see over the next couple of quarters? Well, it might be the Mueller report. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's, it's a great example of having no idea what's, what's going to happen. It's going to be a surprise. Favorite NBA team? I guess the Lakers. Okay. You know, I've lived in L.A. for the last 34 years. You, until you platoon recently. back and forth. Well, I came, we moved, my wife and I moved back here six years ago uh, because our kids moved here. Mm-hmm. And she said, uh, we're going to be in New York. And so we, that's, And we are. And I was, again, I was smart enough to say yes. That's right. The, that's a, maybe I'll make that the title of my book. Smart enough to say yes. Um, name three of your favorite books about any subject. Um, there's a book called Fooled by Randomness mm-hmm. by Taleb, uh, which, you know, when you talk about uh, the limits on foreknowledge, when you talk about the fact that things are unpredictable because of randomness, I think uh, this book uh, contains very, very important ideas, and I know it was very valuable for me. Uh, Peter Bernstein, who was a great investment sage, wrote a book called Against the Gods. Mm-hmm. Um, and story of Risk. Story, story of Risk. And again, it all, uh, understanding risk. Risk is so provocative and uh, so important. And then I would say uh, there, there's a book by John Kenneth Galbraith called A Short History of Financial Euphoria, mm-hmm. which talked about, introduced me to cycles, the extremes of cycles, the error of cycles. And one of my favorite quotes from Galbraith it was that we have two kinds of forecasters, the ones who don't know and the ones who don't know they don't know. <laughs> That's a classic quote. What do you do for fun? Uh, well, spend a lot of time with the kids and their kids now because mm-hmm. my wife was prescient. Uh, since we moved back here six years ago, they both got married. They both had children. So, you know, we're in a great place in that regard. And uh, I like architecture and uh, decorating and that kind of thing. You you actually do a little bit of an architectural tour when you visit other cities, is right, that right? Sure. I, re- I recall you talking about that not too long ago. Um, favorite asset for the next decade? Well, I mean, I, I hate to say that kind of thing because I hate to think of anybody else buying on my say so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, I'm I'm willing to be a long-term investor in the emerging markets, both debt and equity. Um, I think that the, uh, you know, the way I put it, Barry, is that Japan and Europe are senior citizens, economically speaking. The U.S. is a mature adult, Mm -hmm. and uh, the uh, emerging markets are teenagers. And if you ever had a teenager in your house, you know it can be chaotic, chaotic and volatile. 
but you know that the teenagers' best decades lie ahead. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I think about the emerging markets. So, so let me ask you the same question, favorite asset for the next century. A house high up in a hill. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the um, investor goat, the greatest of all time? In the greatest investor of all time. Oh, of all times. Well, I don't know. I mean, I haven't read that much about the personalities, but everybody assumes that it's that Warren guy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he, 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 has a, he has a great record with mm -hmm. a lot of money. Uh, he, and uh, there's a book out called The Warren Buffett Way, and I was asked to write the preface. And I wrote, uh, it's for the like fourth or fifth edition. Mm -hmm. And I wrote something called What Makes Warren Buffett Warren Buffett. And I talked about the fact that he's intelligent and unemotional and he figures out what's important. He, he has a quick study on what's important. He ignores the things that are unimportant and all these different things. And then at the end I said, and he's not afraid to lose a job. And you know, if you are afraid to lose your job, it's hard to do things that are different and bold. And yet, being different and bold is necessary to be superior. And, uh, you know, he, he spends long periods of time in the wilderness. In 2000, when I wrote the memo, everybody's saying, well, it's too bad about Warren Buffett, but, you know, he's lost his touch right. because he didn't have any of the tech stocks. And then, of course, a year later, everybody was saying, you know, what a genius. We, but, you know, there is no approach in the investment world. There is no approach which will always be right. No matter what approach you have, there will be periods when you're in the doghouse. Mm -hmm. And the, the more strongly you hold your philosophy, the more strongly you hew to it, the worse those periods in the doghouse will be. Mm -hmm. And yet, what else is there? You certainly can't, especially since we can't time events, it, it, it can't work to jump from style to style to style and expect to be have the right style at the right time, you have to hold a style. It has to be the one you believe in. You have, it has to be the one you're good at. And then you have to live through and survive the periods in the doghouse. And that's, to me, the mark of a, of a great investor. And by the way, it's, it's not how well you do while your style is in favor. It's how you do when your style is out of favor uh, that determines whether you're excellent or not. That's a perfect spot to open this up. Um, to questions from the audience. Before we do, let's hear it for Howard Marks and, and sharing his insights. We have, we have a microphone. Um, raise your hand if you have any questions and identify yourself by name and company. Um, who has some questions? I, I, right over here. Uh, that, uh, not a plant. Yeah. I, uh, I work at Red Holtz Wealth Management, Barry. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming out, Howard. Quick question. If you had like a crystal ball and I could tell you anything, any question you'd want to answer about the world, what, what would you want to know? You know, uh, let me change it a little bit. Not crystal ball. If I could get an accurate answer, with regard to every security that I'm thinking of buying, it would be how much optimism is baked into the price. Remember that the, the psychology causes the price to diverge from the intrinsic value. 
if the optimism is really high, then the price is high relative to intrinsic value. That's a dangerous investment. If the optimism is really low, the price is probably depressed and very attractive. So if I could get a measure, and this is something I tried to do, especially with regard to the overall market rather than individual securities, I try to do what I call take the temperature of the market. And I would spend my one uh, phone a friend question on that. Any other questions? Right over here, if we can bring the mic over here. I'm Andy, and I'm at Parallaxis Capital. What was the lowest low when you started Oak Tree? The uh, lowest low. It may not be very interesting, but the lowest low was the day we figured out that we didn't have a publishable record. When I moved from City to TCW in 1985, I walked in, I said, here's my record. They published it. Bingo. When I went from TCW to Oak Tree in 95, I said, here's the record. Publish it. They said, well, where's the data? You, need, you have to have monthly auditable data in order to publish a record. Well, of course, we walked out of TCW without that information. And we said, I said, my God, we don't have a record we can publish. How are we ever going to get any business? And, uh, and we figured out a solution. It, was, it worked out pretty well because what we said is we, we wrote the clients and we said, we'd love to have you come over to Oak Tree. And if you come and give us your monthly uh, statements over the years, we'll audit them and we'll ascertain what your performance really was. And, and, and so it was kind of a bootstrap operation. Uh, the, the accounts we got permitted us to develop a record uh, which, uh, which enabled us to get more accounts. It was a, it, that was the lowest day. Interesting question. Thank you, Andy. Anybody else? Any other questions out here? For Howard Marks here yeah. in the back. Okay. Hi, uh, my name is Richard. Um, how do you go about spotting the above average investors that you mentioned before, before they've become one? And do you think you're good at spotting that? Well, clearly, we hire people before they have track records. Um, uh, and uh, we look for uh, a high degree of intelligence, uh, a natural contrarian streak, uh, I would say a willingness to be wrong. We give people cases to analyze, and we look at what they call attention to. And hopefully... It will be the things that, they, hopefully, they'll put a great emphasis on, the, on finding the things that other people haven't figured out. If you figure out what everybody else has figured out, you have no advantage. So uh, I think, uh, and then the other thing is, uh, I use the, the word inference a lot. And I use it all over the book. Uh, not seeing events, but figuring out what they mean. Uh, deeper significance. So we try to hire people like that. In addition, we try to hire good people that other people, including us, will, will enjoy working with and people who want to be part of a long-term team rather than maximize for themselves. Howard, I'm going to give you a, a follow-up question. You've talked in the past about second-level thinking or second-order thinking. Yes. Describe that in a little more detail. What sure. is it sure. when... Uh, that that's the illusion when you're you're looking to hire somebody. How does second level thinking apply to either that or sure. to investing? Well, you know, uh, Mary, 
when uh, when I was thinking about writing the first book, and I said to, and it was I had been approached by Columbia uh, Business School Press about writing a book, and I told them my idea for the most important thing. They said, "Well, send us a sample chapter." And the funny thing is that I sat down at the keyboard and I wrote a chapter that I had never even thought about writing before, and it wasn't even something that I, that was in front of mind before that. But it was, and so the first chapter in the book says the most important thing is second level thinking. And it goes, I go through the thing that I just said to you, that if you think the same as others, you'll perform, you'll behave the same. If you behave the same, you'll have the same performance. That's clearly in a, a formula for superiority. So the answer is that you have to perform, you have to think differently. But it's not so easy because most of the time when people think differently, it's the consensus that's right, so the different thinker is wrong. You have to think differently and better. Those are the two criteria for second-level thinking. And we look for second-level thinkers. Um, which uh, requires, number one, exceptional insight, and number two, a willingness to be wrong. Because when you diverge from the crowd, you, you, you can't do it with certainty that you're going to be right. Uh, but, you know, just to give you a simple idea, uh, uh, the, fir the first level thinker says, this is a great company, we should buy the stock. The second level thinker says, it's a great company, as everybody thinks. It's not as great as everybody thinks, we should sell the stock. If you if you get that, or like you know, you might say, if you get the joke, then you have an insight that we think is valuable. There are people who just don't get that. There are people who don't understand contrarian thinking. And uh, I think it's extremely important that one does. Um, we still have time for one or two more there questions. Was a question over here. Oh, how about right over here? Hi, this is Dixit Sarah from Morgan Stanley. Um, the length of the cycles could be different, right? Right. So some cycles could have prices depressed for one year, two years, three years, right. five years. Yes. So when that happens, for example, with the energy industry or anything like that, mm -hmm. uh, how do you manage around that? Well, uh, you know, I'd love to be able to say I have a brilliant answer to that, but there is no answer. Because as I said, we sometimes know have an idea. I don't even want to use the word no. We sometimes have an idea for what's going to happen. We never know when. We, know, we may know that oil looks cheap. We never know when it's going to go up. And I think that everybody has to get rid of this illusion that these things are knowable. You know, uh, Mark Twain said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for certain that just ain't true. A lot of my answers start with, I have no idea, but. And when you say, when you start your answer that way, it's impossible to get into trouble. You get into trouble when you say, I'm confident of X, Y, Z, and you bet heavily, and you're wrong. So if you accept that the uh, that the investment world is a, is a place where there's a lot of uncertainty, you're going to stay out of trouble. Uh, Henry Kaufman, who was the uh, chief economist of Solomon Brothers in the 1970s, once said, there are two kinds of people who lose a lot of money, the ones who know nothing and the ones who know everything. And I think it's very important not to be either of those. I saw some more questions over here. How about right uh, here? 
Hi, my name is Keith Wen. Um, I'm an architect by trade, so I'm what, I'm what you call a mom and pop investor. Great. So my question is, you mentioned that um, the macroeconomics uh, doesn't influence your investment decisions, but how do you know where you are in the cycle without paying attention to or being influenced by the macroeconomics? For example, you know, the trade war may, may be something that's going to blow over soon, and we're going to focus on the fundamentals again of, you know, the investments. But then what about China, 2025 and all that, the kinds of things that they're investing in? When I look at a country, don't I pay attention to the politics among different countries and what they do, what they invest in, what they, what they want to do in the future? Well, the short answer is yes. The, the long answer, but the short answers are no good. The long answer is that, number one, the things you're talking about are not cyclical. These are <clears throat> one time what we call exogenous events, whether we'll have a trade war, et cetera. And uh, this goes back to really what I said about the macro. What's going to happen in these regards, China, future growth, trade war, et cetera, is very important. But is it knowable? And if it's not knowable, then you just have to understand that it's an uncertainty out there and, and, and uh, you, you, may, you may say, you know, I'm concerned about China. The possibility of a trade war raises the uncertainty for me, so I'm going to invest conservatively. That's not a cyclical consideration, but that's a prudent consideration. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it, it, I keep coming back to this thought that it would be nice to know what's going to happen, but you don't know, and nobody knows. And you're an architect, and what that means is you build buildings and you put in enough steel and brick so that it won't fall down because it, it works according to certain physical laws. And you have to understand that there are no physical laws at work in investing. And uh, the, the future is uncertain and vague and, and random. Um, and psychology dominates. And uh, uh, I, I say in the book, I quote Richard Feynman, who was the great physicist, and he said, Physics would be much harder if electrons had feelings. <laughs> a great quote. You know, you come in the room, you flip up the switch, the lights go on every time. Why is that? Because the electrons flow from the switch to the lights. They never flow this way. They never go on strike. They never fall asleep. They never say, ah, today I don't feel like flowing from the switch to the light. That's physical science. You have to understand the distinction between your field and the field of investing where there are no laws. There are only tendencies. We can get the tendencies on our side, but we can't, you can't build a bridge that's incapable of falling down. I think that's a perfect place to leave us off. So before I ask for a round of applause, I just want to let everybody know there will be drinks and snacks on the other side of those doors, as well as... Uh, copies of Howard's book. I know you have free to copies. Leave. Free copies. Um, well, somebody paid for them. Uh. There is there is no free lunch. Uh. Um, but Howard's going to be able to stick around for another ten minutes, and I promised his wife I would not make him late for dinner. So let's hear it for Howard Marks. Thank you. Thank you.